0: So go to Amazon on March 8th, and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late, and you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the show, my friend. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you today.
1: How are you? I'm really good, thank you, Matt, and thank you for having me on. I'm really looking forward to the conversation, but I've heard a few of the other episodes. I know some of the people you've spoken to, so I know what sort of space we're in, and it's, it's gonna be fun for both sides and hopefully for the listeners as well. Awesome, awesome. So we're gonna
0: dive in deep right away and hit you with an uppercut. So here's the first question, Andrew, I'd love to ask. What is the hardest thing that you've ever had to endure or overcome in your world that you might be able to share with us today?
1: Well, that's a big question, isn't it? What's the hardest thing? And I'm going to frame it with something which hopefully will become relevant later on and completely destroy your entire format at the same time. (laughs) Because if I step back and actually look at my life and what I've been through and all the rest of it, I can't really put myself in the camp of I've had a traumatic life. Later on, hopefully we're going to get to talk about purpose and things like that. That's an important thing within what I do and what we work with people. One of the things has always been a bit of a, I'm going to call it a bugbear as a phrase. I've seen lots of inspirational speakers on stage telling me about all their story and all the rest of it. And they all have this sort of story that they come out with, which just sets your tears flowing. And you go, go, man, go. And then you're bought into it. And it's always the case of either they had everything and then lost it or they started off with nothing and battled through adversity to get there. And I I used to watch them and go, ah, (laughs) I don't, I don't have that story. <laughs> I grew up in a nice family, and we had a nice life. And I went, uh, got educated. I'm a privileged, straight, white male. I mean, God's sake, what's going to go wrong, you know? So let's frame it and realise and actually recognise there's no major trauma that's happened in my life. However. We all have challenges and that's the key thing. And I think that there is, I say this, I set that up because I do think there are a number of us that go through life and we find it hard to recognize or accept that we have had challenges or things are difficult because really, when you look around the world and you see what other people have gone through, what have I got to complain about? on one hand good to have that perspective really useful on the other you also need to recognize what's going on with you and deal with that so then to actually answer your question
0: thank you for the frame appreciate the frame to start helpful.
1: <laughs> so probably the hardest thing for me was actually leaving my corporate job to go out on my own and there's a number of factors within that so uh Depends how much you want on the story, but I can tell you about what I did and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, I ended up working in a corporate career. I was there for the best part of 17 years. And if you want to, we can go into all what that is. Point being is that I had nothing against the firm. I liked working with the people I worked with. I just knew that I wasn't in the right place. And it took me a few years to actually sort of, while sitting and stewing in that, knowing that I shouldn't be here, to realize that I need to get out and then actually to make the decision to get out. Because once you've made that decision to leave or we know you don't want to be somewhere, then it's really hard to engage, and really hard to sort of be positive and all the rest of it. So it would be the case that I would feel physically sick driving into work. Oh. I wouldn't literally throw up over the car, but I would be wretched. You know, you'd feel that real knot in the stomach and this resistance going into work just because I knew I didn't want to be there. And ironically, as a leader of teams, my job was to motivate and inspire oh, us from this position. Of, <laughs> I don't want to be here, but let me help you with what you're doing and all the rest of it. So... Um, Later on, I realized that part of my makeup and who I am and all the rest of it is running through me. I'm a people pleaser. There's reasons for that, but I'm a recovering people pleaser now, obviously. And that meant I didn't like upsetting people. I didn't like the concept of rejection. So telling the boss that I'm going to leave, or the bosses, and then leaving the team that I actually get on well with and some people kind of relying on me and respect me and all that sort of stuff was not easy. Oh, heck no,
0: (laughs) wasn't it? And this exact moment right here, it may not have felt to you to be the most traumatic thing in the world. And I appreciate the frame that you shared with us. I know exactly what you're talking about. I had the same place in my world and came to that spot. And I know a lot of our listeners who are entrepreneurs have come to that spot before. And there's probably people listening right now that are stuck and they feel, viscerally feel what you're sharing right now. They're like, yeah, I wanna leave too. I just don't know how. And and I had this feeling. I was going to ask you, <laughs> how did you know you weren't in the right place? I think you answered the question
1: already. There was a particular moment. It was a point when I got promoted. We went on the this sort of congratulations for becoming a senior manager, and we all went down to a place and we're doing events and things, team building exercises and all that kind of stuff. Some outside, we were sailing international yachts around the Isle of Wight and all these kind of things. And then we're doing some stuff in the classrooms. And we had someone who are now in hindsight have discovered was a coach, wasn't a phrase I was familiar with at the time, but he was doing various things with us. One of the exercises that he did was something which is probably quite common to a lot of people is write down on a bit of paper what your values are, you know what's important to you, okay well, fair enough yeah. And then write down on a bit of paper. how you perceive the values of not the ones that they've plastered on the wall of laminated, but how you actually perceive them. So, and then the idea of the exercise was how can we bring them closer together and get them closer aligned and all the rest of it? And I wrote mine down, I wrote them down, and I looked at them and went, Ooh, you'd think there'd be even one overlap? Oh, so much. And it was literally one of those moments where I just, everything else was going on around me and other exercises going on. And I was stood there going, I don't want to be here anymore. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And (laughs) then. had to spend the rest of the course going and trying to do set these goals and targets and things and what you're gonna do and what you're gonna commit to and all these kind of things and write it on an envelope, all the things that happen in these sort of things, going, can I write? I want to leave, (laughs) is that allowed? Wow,
0: in that moment right there, it dawned on you, holy freaking cow, I'm not in the right place.
1: And then looking back at what I'd done over through my corporate career, I'd sort of hopped and changed and moved and gone to a comment here and gone abroad for a couple of years and actually realized, What I was trying to do was get away from where I was, but hadn't actually acknowledged it or noticed it. And instead of moving out of the firm, I just stayed within the firm doing other things.
0: (laughs) Understood. You were seeking a place where you felt your values were aligned or being met, and it It hadn't happened yet,
1: but not consciously. You know, that was just the body reacting.
0: I wish I would have figured that out in my twenties or thirties, and now at forty-six,
1: I've come closer. I turned forty just after I left, so I probably I was mid-thirties when that happened.
0: Also, in that moment, how much longer before you made the decision to actually leave?
1: It was still about four years because, because I was in that fear state of, well, I know I don't want to be here anymore, but I don't know where I'm going to go to and where I am. I'm getting paid very well, thank you very much, and I like the people I'm around. So you've got all your little sort of tick boxes going on. I'm good at what I do. I'm respecting what I do. So, again, depends if we touch on it, but i run with a version of Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, which hopefully most people are familiar with. But we're hitting all those things in the first few levels, but the one at the top, the self-actualization, the purpose thing, that's what's missing. But if I leave, I'm going to lose all the three beneath it. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: You just described how a lot of us feel. So you're relating to everyone, I think, that listens to our show. (laughs) Good. Spot on. (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of connection there on the idea of they pay you enough that it's comfortable and you're doing well. I don't want to give that up because it afforded a certain level of lifestyle. That's how I felt. Tell me if this connects with you. Because in that time for me, I felt like I didn't know where I wanted to go next. And I didn't actually make the conscious time to sit down and work it out because maybe I was trapped. I mean, I was, I was paid well. This is a first world problem. Oh, woe is me, the high paid executive that makes a lot of money that hates what they do. And do we wake up in 30 years and we're like, what just happened in my life? I made a lot of money and it impacted my team. And I hated every minute of it. I love my people and hated what I did.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I had said what I was going to do, I did lose friendships. I did have people react badly. I had somebody crying because I was leaving. All the things that are actually going to trigger me because of being a people pleaser and all the rest of it, it's like, that's exactly what I didn't want to happen. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You had other people that were glad for me, and that was the majority for sure. It's like, you know, go you. But there were these ones where it actually was traumatic, so to speak, and inverted commas, traumatic, and again, I refer to the previous frame, (laughs) trauma relative.
0: Something that really resonates right now is that conversation with either the person that hired you or the person that promoted you, the boss, whoever it was, that conversation where you actually made it known you were leaving. I dreaded and feared that because I didn't want to let the person down. And for me, the person's name, I mean, I'll share it out there, the person's name is Curtis. And I mention it because I actually connected with him today. It was nine years ago that I left the firm and we still maintain a relationship. I've seen him out a few times and still Love the band, he taught me a lot. He was a good mentor and a friend, and I feared that conversation. I just didn't want to let him down, so I had that pleasing part. I didn't want to let him down, man. He hired me and went on a limb to hire me. What was the lead up to that, and what actually happened then?
1: I knew that I had to wait until January because I got paid a bonus in December. And if I handed my notice in before December, I'm going to lose the bonus. I mean, that's right, out. yeah, same here, yeah. <laughs> And I think we just paid the mortgage off on the house, that kind of thing. So bonus was all coming, these sort of things, things are thinking. So it's going to be right as soon as we hit January. And then there were two partners I wanted to speak to. It was an accountancy firm I worked for. And I kind of wanted to grab both of them if I could. And I know there was a period where I was in and they just weren't around. And so I was going in every day with the intention of handing it. It's like, are they in? Are they in? Are they in? No. So you'd come back and shout and go, did you do it? My wife go, did you do it? Uh, uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) So, and then, yeah, got in, saw them both in there in the room by themselves. And it was just a case of just go for it. Remember what you're doing, why you're doing it, and just steer yourself and go hi can I have a quick conversation um yeah um I'm having me noticing (laughs) and because I've been there for so long they knew me so well and I was like an integral part of the team they didn't know how to react they were all very positive about it it wasn't no one got angry or anything like that it was like really? Because <laughs> if anybody asked that, I had the firm written through me like a bit of British rock kind of thing. And so yeah, came to the show. Okay.
0: Well, thank you for reliving that. And I know that must not have been easy. So appreciate your honor to you for sharing that, Andrew. And you made a comment. You said you're a recovering people pleaser. What does that mean, a recovering people pleaser to you?
1: So, well, I made realisation. So, you know, I'll give you another challenge that came over as well. Because obviously, when you step out of the corporate shield, and you set your own entrepreneurial business up, or whatever it might be, you suddenly realise what you've been protected from. And now that there's no place to hide. And so it starts triggering off all these things that you weren't even aware of, because you're in a completely different situation. So, well, I just discovered that I was a people-pleaser, ultimately. So as an entrepreneur, I found it difficult to sell because I found I was getting into people's faces and being – it's like, oh, you know, actually trying to get them to pay me money. Oh, gosh, no, they will not like it if I am trying to get them me money. It's do whatever you can. I want you to like me. How will I get you to like me? I'll tell you what. I'll drop the price. I'll give it to you for nothing. Let me just like me, like me, like me. That's that's the people pleaser thing. And one of the key thing that I noticed that was fundamental. I couldn't phone people up that were not expecting my call. Even as my best friend, even if somebody I knew really well, I couldn't just pick the phone up and give a call. I could email them and say, "Give you a buzz at two o'clock" or arrange something or whatever it might be, and I happily take a call. But if they are not expecting my call, I cannot ring them up. And thinking about it, it's like, it was a fear of interruption. In my head, when the phone goes, I mean, it annoys me when I'm getting interrupted. I must be interrupting them. And I had situations in the past where I had connected with the phone, people getting angry because I'd interrupted their conversation or whatever it was. And then I go further back. And I remember a time when I was really young and trying to get attention to my dad and he was angry. So he turned around and shouted at me. So that sort of clawing on the parents sort of clothes sort of thing and trousers, skirt, whatever it is, and getting shouted at. So that fed into this sort of fear of interrupting, which there was a rejection prior to that, but this sort of put the icing on it. And then I'd associated it with phones. If I am ringing someone up on the instructions, I can't do it. And that's made me realize where this came from. So Once I'd worked out what it was, I could then start working with someone to try and actually sort this out so that I was not reacting in such a strong way.
0: I wonder how that impacted you in your first years in business. How did that realization come to impact you? I can't can't pick the phone up
1: someone. You know, it's like, right, just put put 10 calls out to people. Uh, No.
0: (laughs) I feel you. I've been that call reluctance place too. I got a lot of books on the shelf that say call reluctance. So I'm, I'm with you, my friend remember the first time that you ever picked the phone up to make that first pitch or that first ask for an appointment. I remember it very clearly. I was freaking terrified, terrified. It was a Friday evening, my second day of training for selling Cutco knives. Here in the US, there's a company where we go and do in-home demonstrations of knives called Cutco. And I worked for them in college. And my first call I ever made at the age of 21, I stared at that freaking phone man for a long time. And the only motivation that I had that got me over the line to make that first call is that I didn't want to face the assistant manager the next day in the office because I kind of had a crush on her. I didn't want to face her and have my tail between my legs because I knew that she wasn't going to go out with me if I came back and said I didn't make any calls. So I was terrified to do it. I did it and still had it for a long time, that call reluctance, man. That was a tough one.
1: I think I've seen it in a few places, but i certainly come up with a certainly so I believe. And it might be more of a male thing than a female thing. I'll be interesting to interested. But I think there's a big overlap or connection between that sales process with the dating process. So the thought of ringing up a girl and asking her out and then she's going to say no and all that kind of thing. Very similar feelings to asking, re, ringing up a potential client and would you like to have a meeting and we'll talk about what we... Same feelings of embarrassment and stressing. I think so. I think so. Yeah.
0: Except for there's a difference. The difference is that I was used to getting rejected by girls a long time before that. Uh, so I already built up immunity for that. But then the idea of, man, uh, you're taking me back here. The idea of the first phone call for a sales pitch was horrifying. Asking a girl out, I've been rejected so much there that I wasn't as scared. I just kind of assumed it was going to be a no a lot of the time. So
1: maybe the fear was gone there. But if you think back to your first calls, would there be maybe in a parallel? Yeah, absolutely but, uh,
0: terrified. Absolutely terrified. I remember the first time I ever asked someone on a date. That was terrifying to me.
1: And that's where practice makes, well... Progress. Makes practice makes progress. progress. <laughs> yes, <laughs> not perfect. <laughs> practice makes progress. <laughs> right. uh, as long as we don't tip into what you were saying there, and I'm not saying it was, but it's like... I'm expecting a no, and therefore the no kind of happens. Yeah, and that
0: can be kind of the rub that at the time I didn't realize that I was kind of expecting a no. Nowadays, I mean, I'm happily married, so I'm not thinking about the dating side, but in the business side, expecting a yes in business. And if it's not a yes, there's not an emotional attachment anymore. The the reluctance isn't there anymore.
1: Yeah, you've got to learn these things and get into the right state of mind, but it's not obvious to us until you've done some work together.
0: Yeah. Well what was that work like for you when you left? Remind me, did you say 2010?
1: Yeah, pretty much, yeah. I started on the first of January two thousand eleven, so it's one 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 one. one. <laughs> <laughs> That's when my business started. That's okay,
0: well part. well, first of all, you left because it wasn't aligned with your values and it just it wasn't jiving with you and you left to go and do something. What was the something that you chose to do and why did you choose that? what you're doing now.
1: So in that intervening period, I'd said that it was a coach that run this exercise for us and I wasn't familiar with the term. In between that time, I had found out about coaching and knew about it. And I'd actually got a role within the firm, which was sort of more, more people-centered rather than just working on business and actually helping them deal with more personal stuff. I was the go-to person if anyone had an issue and really enjoyed it. I remember... I've been away on a job for a while and then I came back and it was the Christmas party, you know, Christmas do. And so people hadn't seen me for a while. And uh, We had dinner, I sat down, the disco started and I was just I was having a drink and someone would come down, plonk next to me and say, oh, how are you doing? yeah, yeah. Can I just ask you a question? And they'd have some sort of issue, and we'd chat about it. And oh, for real, thanks very much. They'd go away, and then suddenly someone else would sit down, and then another one, and, another one. and it got to the point where I was going, ding, next." And there was this like queue of people, <laughs> 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 and one of my kids sort of had been watching it. And then uh, next week, back in the office, I said, oh, "You'd never chance to go down. You'd never chance to think, yeah, you must have absolutely hated it." And I said, "No, I loved it." I absolutely oh, loved awesome. it. Awesome. Okay. Awesome. Because you're seeing instant change, instant solutions. Part of my makeup is I uh, like solving problems. That's part of my inner why. And it taps straight into it. It's like, I've got a problem. Okay, I can help you with that. Or I can help you help yourself with that even better. But um, yeah. So uh, found out about the concept of coaching. Was I managed to get the firm to train me up to pay for a coaching qualification. Nice. Thank you very much. To say it would help with my leadership and all the rest of it. And then when I left, it created a very specific niche for me in the coaching space. So a little bit of context now. So the job that I did does not exist in America in the same way. So I have to give a bit of explanation. But it was in the realm of insolvency. So you have your chapter 11 in America. And then chapter 11, when a company goes bust, the lawyers get involved. And the company kind of runs itself with a few constraints. And then some deal's done and they're off again. It's very different in the UK. The banks have the power to take possession of the company in the same way that they have the possession, ability to take possession of your house, default on your mortgage. They take The directors get removed as directors, and a firm of accountants are appointed to run that company. And actually, on the ground, hands-on, dealing with it, you start from scratch, okay, you're in charge. So my job for 17 years was basically running businesses and having to deal with very difficult situations where it's a case of, right, you've got to get... All the customers on board that they're going to still buy from you. You've got to get all the suppliers on board. Even though you owe them money, you've now got to get them to supply you going forward. You've got to get all the employees on board to say, come on, guys, let's all work together. And then navigate it through trying to keep everything together, hopefully make it profitable, and then sell it as a going concern if you can.
0: That's it. what What? yeah you just named so many different stakeholders and so much level of complexity oh my goodness having those conversations with clients with employees with suppliers probably none of whom like you or really are open to you and they're angry with you and they have questions that are hard to answer and the first interaction is Mr. Andrew Miller nice to meet you wow
1: so Every conversation with the first introduction of employees saying company's gone into administration, hopefully you can get it so you actually pay their wages, but it's not guaranteed. So you need to check whether you can actually pay the wages that they're owed. But you do guarantee it going forward. We're going to try and sell it. We can't guarantee you we're going to keep your jobs. We've got to look at it. We've got to keep it together. Every credit phone with a creditor is like, you're not going to get paid for anything you owed to date. But going forward, we can promise you money. Do you want to still... <laughs> Wow. Pay us and, uh, get the rest of it. What did that uh,
0: teach you about people in the first year of doing that? Maybe simple, maybe complex. What did that teach you about people in the first year of doing that, Andrew? In the first year of doing
1: that, I have to think back. That's a long way now.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the people doing the job had and let's include myself in this and you know anybody in the military anybody in a medical situation will know about this but you've got to kind of compartmentalize build up the walls you can't get too connected to the emotion of it or else you won't be able to do your job properly if you get my meaning so there's an element of wall building going on now different people did that in different ways some people actually turned it into some element of cruelty and they could actually be quite nasty in the way that they approached it or sarcastic should we say and they can be quite mean i always tried to be empathetic and kind as much as i could i remember one of the first jobs i was on it was we had it was a bingo hall that had gone bust and the um guy running it i was sort of showing some potential purchases around and met the guy and he said to me and i've only been there a few weeks and he says you're not like the others You're actually a human being. The others, I feel this sort of dead cold look, but I can see you actually care kind of thing. So you do, but you have to hold it back a little bit because if you care too much about things that could go down or whatever, then you can get caught up in it. So you do have to, so you can still be human and empathetic. And this is the thing, you know, we've had people where we got Christmas cards from employees. There are situations where people thanked me for being made redundant, not because they were glad of it, because you were open and you communicated with them and let them know what was going on and were appreciative of work they were doing. Then when it got to the point of it's not work, they knew that you had done your best and it wasn't your fault. They weren't blaming you. It was, you know, situations outside of that. So you can navigate that way through.
0: Yeah. It sounds like a challenging position for someone who is a recovering people pleaser
1: with a high empathy and a well, high tear. A <laughs> Imagine the phone calls that I'm having, telling people they're not getting paid, they're not going. So little scarred on the phone side of things for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and just about everybody I knew that wasn't involved in that space that I knew from other things, sort of like, oh, is that what you're going to do? Yeah. Well, I say, hope I don't meet you because <laughs> obviously that I'll be the Grim Reaper. You know, it's a bad image. So, said jokingly. And I have had physical threats. I've had rather violent people staring him in my face. I've had people telling me, how do you sleep at night? All these sort of things as well. So you need to get abuse as well, but... Um yeah, all good. So anyway, point B, now the other thing around that was, of course, when I said the directors lose their powers, but unless they are actually genuinely shown to be doing something dodgy, you still work with them. They know their business. Everybody knows their business. It's not our job to know everything. This is why I end up being very useful as a coach. I don't need to know. I just need to be able to understand enough and challenge things here and there, and, and but work with what we've got. So you work with the directors. So through that as well is you then do realize the emotional connection that exists between a business owner and their business which doesn't certainly at that time wasn't really talked about business is business that's what you do this is systems and processes and yes i get all that (laughs) but the heart of it is this human being and when they're watching everything they have built collapse in front of them has an impact on their confidence and their belief and all the rest of it and luckily this wasn't a situation for me but i'm not too far removed i know other people who i worked with where basically the director should we say didn't make it you know it got so depressed by it that they committed suicide and that is not that uncommon and we're talking about people who okay they may have made a mistake but not always but who hasn't made a mistake you know generally usually genuine honest people who have done their best tried to put other people first put themselves last put all their money in, lost everything and kept going so when I stepped out of Working for the KPMG I worked for and set on my coaching. My initial niche was helping people going through some sort of financial difficulty and then insolvency deal with the emotional stress of going through it.
0: Wow. I bet that was something that, as you said, there's not a role like this out there because business is business. There's no emotion in business. This is just business. And to have someone come along that has a heart-centered approach to really empathize and hear and listen and coach, that feels like a powerful
1: place where you can really connect and help people through some tough times. And I had the, Because I knew the arena, because I knew what the letters that people would send and the sort of messages that were coming out, I can interpret it into there. You don't need to worry about that. That's just stuff that gets sent out. Okay, this is important when you deal with this. And But also at the same time, start getting into some sort of deeper psychological things as well, because you're going through people with a lot of trauma. So I started learning, as well as the basic coaching stuff and that sort of thing, I then started just looking into more deeper therapy type things that could actually sort of help people cleanse the stuff. And again, as I'm going through my own journey of not being able to pick the phone up to people or whatever it might be, and I'm learning how to cleanse my own stuff, and then I'm reusing that with other people as we go through.
0: Something that resonates with me is you shared that there was one or maybe multiple, but at least one person would send you a Christmas card or a letter. You're different. So thank you. That feels like the fuel that would keep you going in something like that. Someone appreciates it and, and recognize that you're not the cold machine you're human and you're here to help what impact did letters like that have on you
1: and still have on you in your journey today well i'll again flip it around because you, you have hit the nail on the head to a certain extent and one of the reasons why i kind of wanted to leave was in the main what would happen is you would do it you'd have a job you'd run that company as long as you can you try to set it so ideally good win Business sold on all jobs saved, which did happen quite a lot, luckily. Uh, So final day, contracts signed. It's all handshakes, slap on the back, thank you very much, feel good, and all the rest of it. That lasts for about half an hour. You go back to the office. The bank says, oh, thank you very much. Where's my money? Here's the next job. (laughs) And sometimes what would happen is still be interactions with the new company, but now they're the new company, suddenly we're the enemy again, and all those good relationships would disappear. So you never really saw or able to appreciate the benefit that was going through because it all just either went away or even soured a little bit. So when I was talking earlier on about working with people and seeing the change there and then being able to see that grow, that's where that shift for me happened. It's like, business is one thing, people's where it counts, and that's where I'm interested in going.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, fantastic. Well, today, fast forward to where we are right now today, I would start with what's the big driving motivation or reason that
1: you get up right now every day today? My mission is to change the way that success is measured in business. We all know as individuals that success is not boiled down to one simple thing. But if you look how society treats success, it's about money, the end. Okay, you might call it profits, you might call it sales, you might call it power, you might call it, but ultimately it comes down to money. So we are these complex creatures living in a very simple environment, which does not match what we actually feel. And consequently, a vast majority, not all, obviously, but a vast majority of our stresses, but certainly in business, are caused by this disconnect between what we want to do and what society is telling us to do. Now, at one end, when you think about these people who've lost everything, they were not enjoying life that then. <laughs> you know that's not a good time when they've lost everything. But when you think about it, the depth of that pain is massively increased because we're told if, if you lose all that money, you're a failure. So there's a huge bucket of shame and stress. They may load on themselves, but it's been brought in by all the messages that we get around us not to do it. You can read so many books about you have to fail to succeed. and all that. that doesn't really help you when you're going through it. That pain is exacerbated by this money's important. Flip side, at the other other end of things, you can find really successful people, people who've got as much money as you could possibly work, this business is working, boom, 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 everything's great. And they're still not happy with life. I mean, I've met them, you've probably met them, they're being treated for stress, they're being treated for anxiety, they've got depression, even though in a business sense, they've got it all. So clearly, having money doesn't make you happy. (laughs) So that can't be the right measure.
0: Agreed. Definitely not the only measure. And I 100% agree with everything you've just shared. I know a ton of people that are rich on paper with money, like with physical wealth, that are miserable. So I'm with you.
1: And that's the concept of... I mean, so my company's called Business Enjoyment. That's my brand. You should enjoy what you do. I don't have an issue with money. I know how much pain there is when you don't have enough because i work with these people that have lost everything. I know how much of an impact, but if we can take the pain away of that, and if we focus on the things that really matter to us and worry less about it being about the dollar, then we can actually get more success for ourselves and bring enjoyment and happiness into our life at the same time.
0: Bingo. Yes. I love the way you just brought it full circle. I 100% agree. And now I'm starting to see a bigger picture. So help us understand why is it important for us to even have a conversation around things that matter to us. Do you even need to ask the question? <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> think Dream sometimes the <laughs> sometimes the most direct and simple question, it may be the one that people, it's cliche, and they may think that they all know it, and yet everyone's miserable, or a lot of people are miserable, because they don't know how to approach that question. And you do, you're an expert on it. So if I'm not feeling congruent inside, if I don't like what I do, or if I'm miserable, maybe I make good money and I'm miserable, it's just... If I'm not content in whatever I'm doing professionally, how might I start if I were to have a conversation
1: with you? How might you be able to help me? Yeah, and as you tap into a follow-on thing from there as well, where actually you feel okay, which we'll come back to. So hold that thought as well. It's like, you may not feel bad. You feel all right. One of the issues with us as people is that we are really, really good at putting up with suffering. We need an element of resilience. We need an element of stubbornness, but we hold them to a, Paragon of virtue, which is like this is the be all and end all. You need to keep going. You need you never give up. It's uh, you know, all the hyperbole all around this kind of thing. But if you're stood there, stood in front of a brick wall, and you bash your head against a brick wall, and all the people around you are applauding you and going, Yeah, you gave that wall a really good smack with your head, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna keep smashing your head against the brick wall just because everybody around you says? Go you. Haven't you got a resilient forehead? Or are you going to go, can I do something different? Yeah, you put it
0: that way. Yeah, I'm going to do something different, or I'd like to.
1: Yeah, let's at least have a look around and not smack our head against the brick wall for any longer. The other thing is that when we are in enough pain, then we will do something about it. The problem is we are good at building up resilience, so we'd like to sit in our little stew of misery because we have found a way of being comfortable in discomfort. And the problem and the challenge lies is that to move from there to a better place actually creates more pain before it gets better. So for an example, if you let's say you've dislocated your shoulder, you can get to a point where it's this uncomfortable. It's not really working that well, but you can just about manage the pain. We all know what needs to be done. We've all seen it on sports shows, wherever in terms of how to get a dislocated shoulder back in. We've all seen Mel Gibson do it in *Lethal Weapon* 2. <laughs> <Whatever it laughs> yes, be, good movie. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> it's going to hurt to get, but we have to go through that pain in order to have a shoulder working again. And that analogy works with a dislocated finger or splinter in your finger, or whatever it might be. You know, we find a way of getting comfortable, then we actually things need to get worse for a little bit before they get better. And I think some people call that the loser trap. As things start getting worse, then actually go, no, 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 no. I'm going to go back, go back, go back, go back to safety. I know where I am. I'm familiar with this. Whereas going to this new world can be quite scary. Now, if I was to ask most people to sort of say, how are you right now? Are you enjoying your life? Are you enjoying your business? And that kind of thing. You will get some that are in the if you get yeah, score it out of ten. You will get some that will say that are having a bad time that might score at four, five, six. And normally, when we're in those sort of levels, we think that could be better. There's something we can do about it. There's very few that will score higher than seven. We can tend to default at oh, you know, I'm not going to go for ten because no, you can never be ten and eight, nine looks a bit arrogant, so I'm going to seven. So we kind of get to the position where we it's all right, that'll do. It's not too bad. You know, again being earlier on saying I've not had a miserable life, yeah, was what, the right kind of thing. If you think about it, 7 out of 10, that's 30% you're leaving on the table. Now, if you were in business and put your business hat on and looked at you were doing your systems and process and your profits and looking at all the numbers and all the things that you know are important to a business, and someone came around and said, do you realize that you're leaving 30% of your profits on the table? You're not even going near it. Someone's going to have a word with you. <laughs> Why should we prevent ourselves from looking at that extra 30% of happiness?
0: Why should we? We shouldn't. We should be looking at that. If we can get out of our own way, out of the reactive of the moment and look at it, then it makes a lot of sense to look at it. Makes me think about my own 30%, wherever that might be. Yeah, I'm with you.
1: And that's the distinction. So when i talk about business enjoyment some people think oh i'm okay because i'm not bashing my head against a brick wall i don't have a bleeding forehead i'm all right i'm not in pain but there's also a message out to those people who at seven out of ten are saying this is for everyone there's still more you can get out of life than you're currently getting if you're in that seven out of ten trap as i called it hmm. there's still more we can get And again, drawing back to where this is all the loop I was bringing around at the beginning, this is where we get into purpose. This is where we get into finding that thing, which is making a difference to someone or something out there, which totally connects and resonates with what goes on in here. So it's more than just doing stuff for other people. It's something that connects.
0: Making a difference out there. And it's something that connects for each of us in here. That's how
1: we find purpose. That's the consequence of purpose. So to go looking for purpose, you have to deep in, go inside to work out who you are and then look outside to work out what is that thing out there that's a reflection of me. Create that resonance frequency.
0: Wow. Business enjoyment, to find that purpose in the business. What might an engagement for you, like a coaching discussion or call or an event, what might someone experience? And that's a big umbrella, a lot of different things to go there.
1: It depends where they are. So because business enjoyment is an overarching thing, it's a concept, it's a move. So we've got to get them up to the seven, and then we're at the seven, we want to move beyond that. If we're below seven, then we've got to look at what traps we're running, what patterns we're running, what beliefs we're running that we are Holding on to that are creating the pains and the suffering that we're enforcing on ourselves, or the self sabotage, the perfectionism, the imposter syndrome, the fear of rejection, the fear of losing everything, all these sort of things that might be going on. So, we need to understand what those patterns are. When we're moving into the top space, then it's a case of who are you? What makes you tick? What makes you cry? Tell me about a time when you saw something that made you swell up with emotion so powerfully that. You just wanted to tell everyone about it, you know, and it could be a good thing. And then we can start understanding, pulling together little pieces of who you are.
0: I love the way you just did that. You went to a question time by time, and it was a time when you were at your most connected or most alive or most emotion that was felt. I love that frame of looking back and looking for those specific moments when you felt that
1: emotion or felt congruent, whatever you might want to call it. This is what got me to think to my fear rejection thing. I remember... When the Olympics were in London, we'd spend a week watching the Paralympics. And I, I was very conscious there were a lot of people that were getting all excited. But there was that element of pity with it, if you know what I mean. It's like, oh, well done. He's running because he's got one leg. Huh? You know, And it's like, no, these are athletes. They're doing some amazing things. Let's not patronize them on the basics. Let's look at actually for who they are. And there was one event, and I think it was like a 400 meters. We're in the stadium. And there was one guy who was... Five miles behind everybody else. It was only 400-meter race, but he was still an hour behind everybody else. He was on the track by himself. Everyone had finished already, and he was coming. And as he moved slowly around the track, you could just see this wave of people cheering, standing up and cheering and giving him support and, and all the rest of it. And then the tears just are going down my face at this point because I'm welling up with it. And then it's like, why am I getting emotional over that? Because it's not about there's someone with difficulties overcoming difficulties and overcoming challenges and that kind of thing. That's not what it was. I know what it is. He's been accepted. He's being accepted by these people here, and I can imagine his story through. life. I don't know where I don't know his personal story. I think he wasn't from an African nation, but you can imagine how he would all his life he may have been a minority or on the sides or on the edges and all the rest of it. And here he's a hero. Here he's welcome. Here he's appreciated for what he is doing. And from there came the clue. It's like yeah, being part of something that's that community, that being accepted. That's a, what's the opposite of that? What's the opposite? Oh, hello, fear of rejection. <laughs> And side putting together all the little jigsaw pieces.
0: Wow. I want to honor you and appreciate you for everything that you've shared. I feel like I've been walking with you on a journey and I feel that my emotional intelligence just by being around you, it's rubbed off on me. And I feel like your aura has helped me to come in touch with my feelings a little bit more. So thank you for the empathy boost. I genuinely mean that because that's not my natural strength. And it glows from you and it's an attractive quality that's magnetizing me. So I appreciate that. I was going with that. I just felt compelled to share that, Andrew. That was amazing. And how might our audience find out more about you or connect with you in business enjoyment or your website? How might we connect with you, Andrew?
1: Yeah. So if you're more interested in the business enjoyment concept, then have a guess what my website's called. Oh, hello, businessenjoyment.com. Crazy, eh? Jump on there, then pop-up will come up. You can have a look at my TED Talk, which I've given a flavor of some of the bits I talk about, but more than just money. And there's also an option when you go there to download the accompanying book that goes with it. And then beyond that, LinkedIn's best place to go. Andrew Miller is not the rarest name on the planet, so you might need it to be. (laughs) Yes. Business enjoyment as well, and I should come up. And I've got a new book coming out online, and there's an audio version as well. And that is, we're going in very specific here. So this is called Unleash Your Legacy, and it's about how child-free entrepreneurs leave their mark on the world. So when I talked about purpose, I talked before about there's people that go through trauma and they need that trauma to kick them out of that seven out of 10, five out of 10 trap we talked about. So sometimes trauma is the thing. And then what other people tend to do is they fall into the, my purpose is my family. And family becomes a big part of purpose. Now I don't have kids. My wife and I chose not to have children. Very happy about it. My journey's been very different. I can't rely on that. I, again, I said I have not had a traumatic, so I don't have trauma to uncover my purpose, and I don't have children to be part of my purpose. I've got a boring background of very sort of average life. How do I find my purpose and how do I get connected to that? So it's a different nuance for people who don't have children. Not better, not worse, just different. You got to look at it in a slightly different way. And legacy, ultimately, is creating a business that's built around that purpose. So true purpose, you want it to be a big thing. You want it to run on beyond you. If you're going to achieve it in a couple of weeks, you know, job done, move on. It's not the beast purpose. <laughs> <laughs> <You> know, <Yeah. laughs> we want something. So creating a business that's going to go on with beyond you and keep delivering that purpose, whatever that might be. And in my case, as I say, I want to change the measure of success. I'm attached to the fact that I might not do it, but if I can create something that runs beyond me to keep that rolling, and that's where we get into the space of legacy.
0: Well, I certainly uh, will look forward to, by the time that we launch, to add your new book to the show notes so our listeners can get it there. And we can find you at businessenjoyment.com, also your TED Talk So excited to do that. We're going to link that in the show notes as well, the TED Talk. This has been a masterclass on emotional intelligence. And when you started, you're like, oh, I haven't had any trauma. Well, I think a lot of people might disagree because they're living in that challenging spot right now of they're not living congruent to their purpose. And I
1: wanted to talk to that thing of having watched the people who have, in objective sense, a really difficult life. As I said, I've not had to suffer any prejudice through my life, or you know, the discriminations or had anybody die at a young age or go through the drug abuse. None of that is part of my life. As I said before, we can fall into the trap of thinking that my challenges aren't valuable enough. They aren't worthy enough, but they are. And that's a key thing. And one of the important things is these things are relative. It's relative to where we are, what our current baseline is. And then we fear stress and happiness are connected or relative to that line, rather than it being an absolute, this is good, this is bad. Which is why you can have somebody who's got absolutely everything being absolutely in depression. And you can have somebody in the slums of India with absolutely nothing to their pain. And they can be laughing and happy and jolly and all the rest of it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do something to improve the lot of either. <laughs> That's not saying, oh, we'll just leave them be. They're happy. That's what it's about. You can still find joy. Well, one of my lines is that joy in the face of darkness is the path to light.
0: Joy in the face of darkness is the path to light. For the listeners who are not driving right now, pause and replay that. Joy in the face of darkness is the path to light. Wow. Andrew, if I asked you eternal optimism, what is eternal optimism? What does that mean to you?
1: For me, it basically means it'll be all right. It'll be right now. It's a general thing, specific things. You can be more realistic. Things go wrong. I'm going to set up a new thing. I'm going to trial a new program. I'm going to launch a new book. Being optimistic delusionally means, oh, it's going to be brilliant. It might not be. You're going to test and measure, but big picture, we're going to be all right. So we might have failures along the way. Things are going to be problematic, but that's life. Big picture, we'll be all right.
0: So aside from your books, which we're going to have in the show notes, What is a book or two that have been impactful in
1: your journey in life? Can I give you three? Certainly. One is for the people pleasers listening, particularly for male listeners, but there's a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy, Dr. Robert A. Glover. That will open up some stuff for you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that'll open some stuff up with you. If people are interested in the concept of different measures of success and that sort of and business shouldn't all be about sales and profits good book called is the growth delusion by david pilling looks at things like our obsession with gdp how fake and false and irrational that is and better ways of doing things and then the third book which i would imagine has been mentioned quite a few times on your podcasts it's one of the classics but victor Frankl's man's search for meaning for me is the most amazing book ever written it's just if you've not read it get it and read it. If you have got a copy but not read it, read it. If you have read it, read it again and again and again. There is so much stuff in that book.
0: Thank you. Amazing. Amazing. Andrew, this has been a real treat, and I just thank you. I appreciate you. I love you. I thank you for being here. It's, just been, it's been really, really awesome to have you on. And out of all of this, if those of you listening out there, if you're just listening on the podcast, you can't see Andrew, then I encourage you to go to YouTube here in a couple months when this comes out, because you would think that I'm talking to a man after all the stuff in the business that he talked about, you would think he has no hair. He has an amazing head of hair. This is, this is amazing. <laughs> head of hair you have here. So I want to compliment you on that. And in your background, you have a giant smiley face pillow, which I love. You've got some really cool stuff here.
1: Those are actually representations of my business enjoyment model. So awesome. Awesome. We've got a turtle for feeling safe. We've got a penguin for uh, create your community. We've got a lion for inner confidence. We've got a killer whale for find your purpose. We've got money hang ups So we've got overarching enjoyment. Enjoy your business with a smiley face. So yeah, yeah. We get the uh, more than just money book and it'll tell you all about it. Awesome.
0: Well, Andrew, again, thank you for showing up today and giving us your best. We really love you and appreciate you, man. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me on. uh, I said it would be a pleasure and it was. (laughs) You did not disappoint. Absolutely.